Bookworm Games, episode 18, Reading Summers. Welcome back, and happy Father's Day. In an early summer flurry of activity, I've decided to make a second episode this week. Continuing on to summers, passing through winters, we'll cross the halfway mark of the game, and we've already come over halfway through the opening series of Bookworm Games. As I've been planning it out, there should be about 14 episodes left, and whether that translates to 14 more weeks or perhaps fewer will depend on how disciplined and productive, or not, I managed to be this summer. We begin once more in Threed, only it's sunny this time. Deposited there by the Runaway Five tour bus, and left with Lucky's helpful suggestion to root around for an important item that might have been missed, that was forgotten. And no, it's not the insignificant item, though that, now that Ness knows teleportation, could be worth running over to a guy in Tucson in exchange for a magic truffle. Particularly, if you're out of bottle rockets and tired of restocking them, you'll want to have your sigh to fall back on against the guardian of the fourth, your sanctuary location, shortly to be faced. What could you be looking for, then, upon this prompt from the singer, on behalf of the game's interest in keeping you playing by keeping you making progress? More zombie paper? Another jar of fly honey? An eraser eraser to go with your pencil eraser? Not just yet. In the cavernous underground room that was Ness and Paula's prison, you'll find the answer. It's the Skyrunner, looking good as new. The two 3Dians who fixed it say they gave it a new coat of paint in return for your help in saving the town. And with a quick tune-up, Jeff has it ready to fly as far as Winters, where Dr. Andonuts can calibrate it for the next leg of the journey. It is instructive the way that they have it fixed cosmetically allows Jeff to see what the problem is on the inside, but only enough to retrace his initial flight. It will take his dad, the creator, to make the adjustments necessary to fly it somewhere new. In all these distinct stages, I think Earthbound accomplishes both the pragmatic task of get, getting you back to winters where you might have forgotten that a sanctuary spot awaits, but also it suggests something about the nature of creativity that lurks behind or beyond surface looks or even technical skills or habits. So back to winters then where you've recognized, or you are recognized this time, by Dr. Ann Donuts, and made somewhat more welcome than Jeff was before. He invites you to meet his friend Bigfoot, and to explore the cave north of Stonehenge, while he reprograms the Skyrunner. You learn about Jeff's bedwetting, buy some excellent beef jerky, have a rest in the revitalizing device, and fight Shroom, with an exclamation point included. You need to keep your fingers crossed once those mushrooms start sprouting out of your party's heads. There's the chance of them accidentally attacking one another or themselves in confusion. But if all goes well, you're through to Rainy Circle, a patch of precipitation that mysteriously stays liquid water while there's snow all around. It brings you back from any mushroomization or poisoning you may have endured. It fills in the fourth melody on your soundstone and it leaves Ness with a whiff of your favorite food. With the droplets of rain rippling in the puddle as they fall from an unseen cloud 
never freezing. For a moment, all is right with the world. You might be wondering, though, after Apple Kid had called you about going to work on the phase distorter with Dr. and Donuts back when you were in Foresight, you might be surprised to see no Apple Kid in winters. And that eraser eraser for the eraser statue blocking the way into the main Stonehenge maze is still there, as are the iron gates to Snowwood Boarding School. If you teleport back over there, you'll also hear about monkeys and Tessie watchers named Sebastian going missing, the latter memorialized in a haiku. But these mysteries will have to wait. School's out. It's time for summers. Like winters, summers plural suggests the abstraction of the class or category e pluribus unum, which along with its capitalization reaches for the quintessence of the season, a place name summers, out of the cyclic repetitions of summers. Unlike the gentle circles traced around the signal from the grave prison back in Threed, the Skyrunner comes in for a crash landing on the beach without build-up. No one remarks on this, but then again, the oracle in Moonside already had. She saw a silver ball shining in the sun. You're burned, but you're fine. The boom of your crash landing garners no interest from the wealthy tourists and no concern from the jaded locals. The bits of broken machinery, just three fragments on the sand, gradually are swallowed by the tide, seem to be beyond repair. You're unable to check them, or if you do, you get the generic text. No problem here. The sound of the tide lends itself to the languid music of the place, which lounges horizontally along its beach, as opposed to the rigid verticality that characterizes winters, or the more four-square structures of the numerically named towns. The same top-down viewpoint, which mediates the game as a whole, here has the effect of flattening your appreciation of what everyone seems to believe is a beautiful paradise. You, from your perspective, can only see the landward side of things, and you're incapable as yet of looking or venturing out onto the grandeur of that ocean whose extreme limit pushes its seafoam lips against the coastline. Resolutely focused on seeking Pokey, whose stolen yellow helicopter is nowhere to be seen, your seriousness this time causes comment, as before it was your smile that the runaway five and the old people in Threed remarked upon. The out-of-placeness of your attitude is compounded by further faux pas, talking to the diners at the fancy restaurant with its geometry-boggling seafront window view, off to the side of the entrance that you come in from the direction of the sea, but that's neither here nor there. The diners comment on mistaking you for the waiter, or they compare your brazenness in going up to people's tables to that of going into people's houses and going through their stuff, whilst acknowledging that this is the sort of thing that people on adventures have been known to do. And that's a trope that's drawn attention to most, in the insignificant item in that hospital drawer in Threed, and in the short story in the beachfront house, its couch back in Onet. You might also recall that Pokey's parents were at a fancy restaurant the night of the meteorite landing. That same sprite 
of the old woman who liked your smile in Threed is here at a table in the restaurant remarking on how she doesn't like eating hard foods, like rocks or stones. A bizarre thing to say on the face of it, but it may make slightly more sense after you've chewed over the rock on stage at the Stoic Club. In the hotel, which mistakes the spelling of its name, leaving off the final S on its sign out front, the bellhop mistakes you for Pokey. A cosmopolitan traveler on the mezzanine wonders how you pronounce otter, why it isn't hotter, since you pronounce hotel as hotel. And another unassuming local guy upstairs lays bare the overpriced reality of summer's fortunate real estate. Though the shops are très cher in summers, it must be said, or at least it is said by the people there, that their beach is delightful for tanning or falling in love multiple times a day, while next door in Toto, the equipment for sale just is not of the same high quality, and in place of a beach, there's a sleepy dock with no boats available. The Riviera of Summers and the tranquil port of Toto, with its lampposts and cats, its terracotta roofs overhanging narrow cobblestones, combine to give a sense of foreignness and home, the sense of people actually being able to afford to live there in Toto, even if they have to work up the beach in summers. The museum, at least, is still cheap, just like its counterpart in Forsyth. A muttered gripe you overhear there about Mr. Spoon, along with clues about the security guard upstairs, are mysteries which we'll have to wait for a couple weeks to unwind. To the French language jokes in the hotel, a dog in Toto rebuts, bow, now brown cow. It's a clever pun on more than one animal, and it reminds the silent Ness who nevertheless seems to be able to understand the language of Bigfoot, monkeys, and even French tourists, reminds him of the tongue twisters awaiting even native speakers when using that language we usually take for granted, and it becomes instead a consciously trained skill. Keep an eye out, too, for more graffiti on a sign on the border between Summers and Toto. There's a cheeky Bart Simpsonism from your dear neighbor Pokey. Eat my shorts. In fact, you'll shortly be eating something else, and not the rock on stage either, though it's close. As you go around talking to everyone in Toto, someone gives you the secret phone number to the Elite Stoic Club, that place so exclusive that its sign reads Club Stoic in elegant script above the door, and yet a voice tells you that this is not the Club Stoic, so move along if you try the doors before you use the reservation hotline. But when you call, they hook you up right away for free. First, though, you get a call on your receiver phone. It's from Tony, who claims he's doing a school project. His relief, though, at getting a hold of you, and then his reticence to end the call, suggest he's really mostly overjoyed to talk to his best friend, Jeff, and make sure that he's doing okay. Tony asks you for your name, you, the one holding the controller. Not once, but twice, so you know it must be important. But without any further items in his questionnaire, the survey of his, the nature of his research survey remains obscure for now. How did he get your number, anyways? What parallel adventure has T-O-N-Y been on? The receiver phone and all the phone numbers that are now at your disposal 
your mom, your dad, and your sister or Escargot Express, as well as Mach Pizza, which you may or may not have actually ordered since it's uh, quite expensive. And now the Stoic Club. I'll play into both the key, key motifs that we've been looking at. Uh, the journey itself and of their relationships along the way. Both of which I think contain elements of movement and repetition, of the sense of obstacles to face and to overcome, of struggle and release. Here's how it plays out in this next issue. The captain of a, of a ship in Toto bemoans his relationship with his wife, who has taken to hanging out in summers at some snooty club. He worries that they're growing apart, and he's so down about it he can no longer even care about sailing. She, for her part, has given up working at her magic cake cart on the boardwalk and spends all her time in the Stoic Club. You'd be forgiven for thinking that you reunite the captain and the baker and then cross the sea. It's a good deal more intricate than that, though we'll get there. First, why Stoic Club? So it's a reference to the respected school of philosophy, arguably as important as Plato's or Aristotle's strain of the inquiring spirit of Socrates, whom the Stoics also laid claim to as their model. Whereas Plato taught in the academy, a sacred grove of trees, the Stoics are so named for the colonnade where they held forth, the Stoa. This distinction between grove and colonnade seems to be recalled by the painted palm trees on the exorbitantly priced shop, which neatly conflates the two. Indeed, the club's brand of Stoicism is not what you might expect. Straying from classical statements of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius or the Enchiridion, that is, a handbook of Epictetus, these being works by an emperor and a slave, respectively. As a sample of their writing, consider these culminating sections from the Enchiridion. Never call yourself a philosopher, nor talk a great deal among the unlearned about theorems, but act conformably to them. Thus, at an entertainment, don't talk how persons ought to eat, but eat as you ought. For remember that in this manner Socrates also universally avoided all ostentation. And when persons came to him and desired to be recommended by him to philosophers, he took and recommended them. So well did he bear being overlooked. So that if ever any talk should happen among the unlearned concerning philosophic theorems, be you for the most part silent. For there is great danger in immediately throwing out what you have not digested. And if anyone tells you that you know nothing, and you are not nettled at it, then you may be sure that you have begun your business. For sheep don't throw up the grass to show the shepherds how much they have eaten, but inwardly digesting their food, they outwardly produce wool and milk. Thus, therefore, do you likewise not show theorems to the unlearned, but the actions produced by them after they have been digested? When you have brought yourself to supply the necessities of your body at a small price, don't pique yourself upon it, nor, if you drink water, be saying upon every occasion, I drink water. But first consider how much more sparing and patient of hardship the poor are than we. But if at any time you would inure yourself by exercise to labor and bearing hard trials, do it for your own sake and not for the world. Don't grasp statues, but... When you are violently thirsty, take a little cold water in your mouth and spurt it out and tell nobody. 
The condition and characteristic of a vulgar person is that he never expects either benefit or hurt from himself, but from externals. The condition and characteristic of a philosopher is that he expects all hurt and benefit from himself. The marks of a proficient are that he censures no one, praises no one, blames no one, accuses no one, says nothing concerning himself as being anybody or knowing anything. When he is in any instance hindered or restrained, he accuses himself, and if he is praised, he secretly laughs at the person who praises him, and if he is censured, he makes no defense. But he goes about with the caution of sick or injured people, dreading to move anything that is set right before it is perfectly fixed. He suppresses all desire in himself. He transfers his aversion to those things only which thwart the proper use of our own faculty of choice. The exertion of his active powers toward anything is very gentle. If he appears stupid or ignorant, he does not care. And in a word, he watches himself as an enemy and one in ambush. When anyone shows himself overly confident in ability to understand and interpret the works of Chrysippus, say to yourself, unless Chrysippus had written obscurely, this person would have had no subject for his vanity. But what do I desire? To understand nature and follow her. I ask, then, who interprets her? And, finding Chrysippus does, I have recourse to him. I don't understand his writings. I seek, therefore, one to interpret them. So far there is nothing to value myself upon, and when I find an interpreter, what remains is to make use of his instructions. This alone is the valuable thing. But if I admire nothing but merely the interpretation, what do I become more than a grammarian instead of a philosopher? Except, indeed, that instead of Homer I interpret Chrysippus. When anyone therefore desires me to read Chrysippus to him, I rather blush when I cannot show my actions agreeable and consonant to his discourse. Whatever moral rules you have deliberately proposed to yourself, abide by them as if they were laws, and as if you would be guilty of impiety by violating any of them. Don't regard what anyone says of you, for this, after all, is no concern of yours. How long, then, will you put off thinking yourself worthy of the highest improvements, and follow the distinctions of reason? You have received the philosophical theorems, with which you ought to be familiar, and you have been familiar with them. What other master, then, do you wait for to throw upon that the delay of reforming yourself? You are no longer a boy, but a grown man. If, therefore, you will be negligent and slothful, and always add procrastination to procrastination, purpose to purpose, and fix day after day in which you will attend to yourself, you will insensibly continue without proficiency, and living and dying, persevere in being one of the vulgar. This instant, then, think yourself worthy of living as a man grown up, and a proficient, let whatever appears to be the best be to you an inviolable law. And if any instance of pain or pleasure or glory or disgrace is set before you, remember that now is the combat, now the Olympiad comes on, nor can it be put off. By once being defeated and giving way, proficiency is lost, or by the contrary, preserved. Thus Socrates became perfect, improving himself by everything attending to nothing but reason. And though you are not yet a Socrates, you ought, however, to live as one desirous of becoming a Socrates. The first and most necessary topic in philosophy is that of the use of moral theorems, such as, we ought not to lie. The second is that of demonstrations, such as, what is the origin of our obligation not to lie? The third gives strength and articulation to the other two, such as, what is the origin of this is a demonstration? 
For what is demonstration? What is consequence? What contradiction? What truth? What falsehood? The third topic, then, is necessary on account of the second, and the second on account of the first. But the most necessary, and that whereon we ought to rest, is the first. But we act just on the contrary, for we spend all our time on the third topic, and employ all our diligence about that, and entirely neglect the first. Therefore, at the same time that we lie, we are immediately prepared to show how it is demonstrated that lying is not right. Upon all occasions we ought to have these maxims ready at hand. Conduct me, Jove, and you, O destiny, wherever your decrees have fixed my station. I follow cheerfully, and did I not, wicked and wretched, I must follow still. Whoever yields properly to fate is deemed wise among men and knows the laws of heaven. O Crito, if it thus please the gods, thus let it be. Anitus and Melitus may kill me indeed, but hurt me they cannot. That's from the handbook of Epictetus. Part of the importance of Stoicism for us is the way that it, like the Aristotelian logic and Platonic ideals taken up later in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, the Stoicism is woven quite early in this case into the emerging Christian philosophical framework right there at the tail end of the Roman Empire's sway. By Boethius, neither a slave nor an emperor, but an esteemed statesman who falls out of favor and is imprisoned for his honesty and integrity, for living up to Christian Stoic principles, dying by them, much as Socrates before him. Here's a nice illustrative passage from his Consolation of Philosophy. It's a great favorite of the Tolkien professor. This comes from the opening. I, who once composed with eager zest, am driven by grief to shelter in sad songs. All torn the muses' cheeks who spell the words for elegies that wet my face with tears. No terror could discourage them at least from coming with me on my way. They were the glory of my happy youth, and still they comfort me in hapless age. Old age came suddenly by suffering sped, and grief then bade me her government begin. My hair untimely white upon my head, and I a worn-out bone bag hung with flesh. Death would be happy if it spared the glad, but heeded invocations from the wretch. But now death's ears are deaf to hopeless cries, his hands refuse to close poor weeping eyes. First fickle fortune gave me wealth short-lived, then in a moment all but ruined me. Since fortune changed her trustless countenance, small welcome to the day's prolonging life. Foolish the friends who called me happy then, whose fall shows how my foothold was unsure. While I was quietly thinking these thoughts over to myself and giving vent to my sorrow with the help of my pen, I became aware of a woman standing over me. She was of awe-inspiring appearance, her eyes burning and keen beyond the usual power of man. She was so full of years that I could hardly think of her as of my own generation, and yet she possessed a vivid color and undiminished vigor. It was difficult to be sure of her height, for sometimes she was of average human size, while at other times she seemed to touch the very sky with the top of her head, and when she lifted herself even higher, she pierced it and was lost to human sight." Her clothes were made of imperishable material, of the finest thread woven with the most delicate skill. 
Later, she told me she had made them with her own hands. Their color, however, was obscured by a kind of film, as of long neglect, like statues covered in dust. On the bottom hem could be read the embroidered Greek letter pi, and on the top hem the Greek letter theta. Between the two, a ladder of steps rose from the lower to the higher letter. Her dress had been torn by the hands of marauders, who had each carried off such pieces as he could get. There were some books in her right hand, and in her left hand she held a scepter. At the sight of the muses of poetry at my bedside dictating words to accompany my tears, she became angry. Who, she demanded, her piercing eyes alight with fire, has allowed these hysterical sluts to approach this sick man's bedside? They have no medicine to ease his pains, only sweetened poisons to make them worse. These are the very women who kill the rich and fruitful harvest of reason with the barren thorns of passion. They habituate men to their sickness of mind instead of curing them. If, as usual, it was only some ordinary man you were carrying off a victim of your blandishments, it would matter little to me. There would be no harm done to my work. But this man has been nourished on the philosophies of Zeno and Plato. Sirens! It would be a better name for you and your deadly enticements. Be gone, and leave him for my own muses to heal and cure. These rebukes brought blushes of shame into the muses' cheeks, and with downcast eyes they departed in a dismal company. Tears had partly blinded me, and I could not make out who this woman of such imperious authority was. I could only fix my eyes on the ground, overcome with surprise, and wait in silence for what she would do next. She came closer and sat down on the edge of my bed. I felt her eyes resting on my face, downcast and lined with grief. Then sadly she began to recite the following lines about my confusion of mind. So sinks the mind in deep despair, and sight grows dim when storms of life blow surging up the weight of care. It banishes its inward light and turns in trust to the dark without. This was the man who once was free to climb the sky with zeal devout, to contemplate the crimson sun and the frozen fairness of the moon. Astronomer once used in joy to comprehend and to commune with planets on their wandering ways. This man, this man sought out the source of storms that roar and rouse the seas, the spirit that rotates the world, the cause that translocates the sun from shining east to watery west. He sought the reason why spring hours are mild with flowers manifest, and who enriched with swelling grapes ripe autumn at the full of year. Now see that mind that searched and made all nature's hidden secrets clear lie prostrate prisoner of night. His neck bends low in shackles thrust, and he is forced beneath the weight to contemplate the lowly dust. So, Boethius encounters Lady Philosophy. Up in the club, though, rather than the serious questions of the place of mortality and free will in the plan of a divinely ordained cosmos, we are invited to ponder pretentious pseudo-intellectual balderdash of the likes of this. Didactically speaking, seminal evidence seems to explicate the fact that your repudiation of entropy supports my theory of space-time synthesis. Of this, I am irrefutably confident. Now, arguably, that could be unpacked, as explicate is literally to unfold, and it could actually mean something, and I confess I have tried to do so in another place. But more important than any serious point about entropy, 
which is the tendency of ordered systems towards disorder. And if you take our universe to be a closed system, the ultimate heat death of the universe, which Ness and his friends are evidently repudiating, um, or Einstein's insights about space-time, more important than those is the overwhelming odor of BS. The joke hits close to home, dear listeners. There are shades, too, of the Sokol hoax. Here's how Pinker, in his spiritedly witty and fearsomely empirical Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, here's how Pinker describes the Sokol hoax. Transgressing the boundaries towards a transformative hermeneutics of quantum gravity is the centerpiece of the famous Sokol hoax, in which the physicist had written a mass of gobbledygook, and, confirming his worst suspicions about scholarly standards in the postmodernist humanities, got it published in the prestigious journal Social Text. Now, lest we, who may fancy ourselves brighter or at least more commonsensical than the editors of contemporary academic journals, uh, uh, think ourselves high and mighty, we should also bear in mind that the likes of Goethe and Thomas Jefferson were taken in by a literary hoax back in their day. This one was engineered by a Scottish schoolteacher come poet purporting to be translating an ancient bard called Ossian, the so-called Homer of the North. Here's how Jacques Barzun describes it in his Dawn to Decadence, 1500 to the present. Ossian, a work published by James McPherson that soon swept Europe in translations. He presented the poem as his rendering into English of an ancient Gaelic epic which only fragments remained. It caused rapturous admiration and violent controversy. Dr. Johnson denounced it as a fraud and was right. But the evocations in archaic tones of antique manners in the midst of wild nature filled the need not merely emotional but intellectual. New names, new scenery, new modes of life were in demand. Boredom had done its work in preparing for renovation. Ossian, now unreadable, served its therapeutic purpose down to the time of Napoleon, who admired it and encouraged his court composer to make it into an opera. So... And yet, I would say for all its excesses, the poetry of the Romantics continues to inspire. The child is the father of the man, as Wordsworth put it. Back in Club Stoic, we're also invited to blush at our ignorance of the ideological inner party line. Another patron says, you guys can't envision the final collapse of capitalism? Incredible! Other patrons are more honest. Hmm... I think it's a very complicated issue. Oh, sorry. I was sleeping. You know, I really want to eat some magic cake. It's a mysterious work of art. I can't get that cake off my mind. There's only one woman who can make magic cake. She's hanging out in this club. Yeah, she's over there at the entrance. Anyway... The absolute irony and study of self-identification is blah, blah, blah. I don't know what to do. But the owner of Club Stoic is the best of all. You don't understand what the hey everyone is talking about, do you? 
I don't either, but I try to be patient with the customers. They pay high prices just for a glass of water and the chance to have serious intellectual discussions. Actually, it's an easy business. You want a drink? We only serve water, though. And just in case you were hoping to meet the Runaway Five at what appears to be rock on stage at a club, he points out, The show? It's already started. Everyone stares at the stone on stage and philosophizes. Doesn't it sound stupid? If you just want water, go to the drugstore. It's a lot cheaper there. As for the woman in what looks like a pink Snuggie, the captain's wife, I finally awakened the inner me, the true self. The patrons of this club are able to stare into their own soul hard enough to burn a hole in their psyche. I'm now comfortable enough to stare at the real me, the true self, and burn the impression into my superego. I want to be in this comfort zone at any time, all the time, or at no time. My id is telling me... What? What? Magic cake? You came all this way just to eat my magic cake? And then you can say yes or no. If you say no which I've never done, but I got this off the text dump on starman.net. You, you say no, she'll say, Okay then, don't get in my way while I search for the little girl within me. Yikes. But if you say yes, and you gotta say yes, I see. Okay. Why don't you stop by a little card out on the beach later? So, she's convinced to make magic cake again, not by your telling her about her husband, but by asking her about magic cake. And the one she prepares for Ness is a special magic cake made from the leftovers of all the other magic cake. And whatever the relation is between magic and psi powers, the effect is like that of traveling to Moonside. Uh, but even more, it's kind of like the upshot of that ambush in the hotel room, which led Paula to call to Jeff. This time it's the fourth friend, Pooh, or whatever you named him, who sets out on his adventure. So that's where we'll pick up next time. The hangouts of hoaxers and posers of the decadent West, along with its pamphlets and handbooks of proselytizers, Christian and Stoic, will be set aside. And the rocks and the millstones are booted off the stage. We're off to Dalam, a country to the east. Till then... Take care.